0: Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. Longtime fans of our show certainly know the name Tony Macklin. He made his first appearance with us during our Kubrick series segment on The Shining. In the years since, he's entertained and enlightened our listening audience with his insightful commentaries on a variety of films and the fascinating artists behind them. But in this episode the spotlight will fall squarely on Tony himself. The early films that first grasped his imagination, the magazine that opened the doors to sitting down with figures like Hitchcock, Altman, and Warren Beatty, and the appreciation of the written word that continues to motivate the reviews he pins today. You can read those reviews and indulge in a back catalog of his highest profile interviews by visiting TonyMacklin.net. I want to know when you first kind of, kind of fell in love with movies. Did they were you taken by movies as a child?
1: Paulie and Kayla wrote a book called "I Lost It at the Movies." It's almost a natural thing, a natural evolution, national natural journey into the movies. Uh, I can remember going to a lot of movies, but I never quite thought of them as, as anything other than a natural part of my life and a, a a a an experience. I mean I'm I'm not sure at any point in my life I realized how important
0: movies were. The series that we we do with you, uh I whenever you come on the show uh and we just have a, you and I in in, in conversation I always call those shows Critical Perspectives with Tony Macklin. So I'm curious, what were the films that first informed your own personal critical perspective?
1: I think it was very young. The the
0: first two
1: films I ever saw, I was thinking back on this, um, my aunt took me to a theater. Remember, back in those days, there wasn't television. There weren't movies on television, which kind of... (laughs) Well, what about the computer? Uh, Forget that. Uh, Not even television. (laughs) So the the theater was a really individual, unique experience. In the first two movies I saw, I saw the three Disney's, the three Caballeros. My aunt took me to see that. And later, I remember seeing a Robin Hood film. It wasn't The, the Adventures of Robin Hood, the, the great one with Earl Flynn. I think it was The Bandit of Sherwood Forest with, with Cornell Wilde. So as I grew up, I was a combination kind of Robin Hood and Donald Duck. You're supposed well, to laugh at that because that's absurd. But uh, (laughs) thank you very much. I I, 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 I
0: see a lot of Donald Duck in you.
1: (laughs) I think almost every Friday and every Sunday of my boyhood, I would go to the movies on Friday night. And I loved the films of the Bowery Boys, and especially Satch, Hunts Hall, who I finally talked to on the phone one time, uh, when I was on the set of, uh, of uh, Earthquake, and somebody knew him, it was a friend of him, and we talked on the phone. And that, I, I must have said two words. The t- two most smitten times in my life was when I talked to, uh, t- on the phone. I actually talked to Satch, and I stood on this set of Earthquake. I, I, I stood next to uh, Ava Gardner. And those were two overpowering, transcendent experiences. Um, So I would go every Friday night, and I would go every Sunday afternoon and and see the Bowery Boys and and Abbott and Costello and the Durango Kids cereal. I suppose that there was a kind of uh, development of a fondness that became a love. I would spend my summers at Ocean City, New Jersey, and they would. It, Sunday was a kind of a, a, a quiet day at Ocean City because they didn't allow they didn't allow liquor in. They didn't sell liquor, and by Sunday evening, everybody had gone back to Philadelphia, gone back to New York, or wherever their their home was, and a few of us were were, were left there for or, for the summer, and I would ride my bicycle up on the boardwalk just seeing what posters they were putting in for movies the next week. So there must have been something that caught a hold of me early and some things are almost beyond words. It, it, yeah. I've I've often tried to think of what, how can I make this sound significant and important and it's just slipping into a, a, a sense of being and something that continually challenges you and surprises you and throughout your life teaches you. I, I'm, I, I'm not a born educator, but I certainly was a good educator. And I think that's part of film, that in film, well, one thing is that I have always read people pretty well. I've always had a sense of them, and I think that leads to my writing and, and to the fiction writing especially, understanding other people and understanding that everybody affirmed this person, whether it was at summer camp, and I said, no, there's something wrong with him. There's and he turned out to be the, the guy that stole th- stole things. And the movies gave me, I suppose, a, a comfort zone for that, a, a comfort zone that kept my... My intelligence, or awareness, or uh, my my may I I I could even say soul, active, and it wasn't really. It's very hard to to find a time, a moment in that where I can say, "Aha, that's the moment where I loved movies," or "That's the moment of of where my life was changed." It was it was a transformation that evolved. I think, like maturity or growing up or... or, So it's part of your childhood. I believe more, I think, the thing I believe most in is creativity. And I do love creativity. Now, the thing about being creative or trying to be creative is you don't live in the past. Creativity is always the present. I assume when you do interviews... You always want it to be the best one. Now, it won't be, but you always have that, that you don't think, oh, I, I did this before and I have to do this again. No, you think of it as a new experience. When I write a, a film review, even even now, I started chasing after the best review I've ever written, not thinking in terms of the past, so creativity is in the present, and that's what I think my my film experience was. It was a present need, a present fulfillment, a present uh, uh, sense of wonder.
0: Did your did your affection for the movies did it go hand in hand with an affection for literature and writing?
1: Yes, I, I think it did.
0: Um, that I. I'm
1: really a fan of symbolism. And literature, especially Scott Fitzgerald, Jerome David Salinger, even Hemingway, they taught me what symbols were and that things are are not literal. That, that Hitchcock's films were, were considered great thrillers. They didn't realize at the time that they came out that they were wonderful expressions of philosophy and religion and psychology and all, all of these things that matter beyond the literal. And literature, I think, taught me that. And when I went to Villanova and graduated from Villanova, I did my master's thesis on James Agee, who brought those two worlds together. He was the grandfather of, of, of film criticism, and I, I think is probably, in my mind, the best that ever was. And he also wrote a novella, The Morning Watch. He wrote a novel that was post, published posthumously. See, there's still hope for me, posthumously, if may
0: happen. <laughs> so I, I want to know about your cr- career trajectory so, so, so you went. You went to college. What, what did you study in college? I was an English major,
1: and mostly okay. contemporary literature.
0: And with an ambition to the, with an ambition to write yourself, obviously. Oh, absolutely! In fact, in fact, if
1: looking back, if I ever do look back, and as I said, I, I seldom do, but. Um, my first year at the university of dayton i had gotten married and had a child but i was offered a gilman fellowship at johns hopkins university and that might have been the the one time that there was a crossroads that was was crucial to me and i stayed with the job and i created a film magazine film heritage listed for twelve years was international and I'm, I'm not sure, I could ever have been a a significant writer, a fiction writer. Um, I was very good on dialogue. I had learned, or had, I didn't know I was learning at the time, but I read the novels of John O'Hara, who's wonderful at dialogue. But I couldn't write plot at all. I had I had no sense of plot. So um, my novels tend to be. A character with a with a sense of of at least some direction, but uh, that so and that then I then I was was between literature and film. Now remember, there was no such thing as as film courses in 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 schools, except at at major major schools that that had film departments or some kind of film orientation. Like uh, USC, UCLA, NYU, there were a few. But this is a time where, when I when I created my magazine, it was one one of maybe four significant magazine, film magazines in the country, um, and the others coming from from hotbeds of film. And here I was in Dayton, Ohio, and oh. I was lucky. And I believe that's what I believe in more than anything else. I believe in karma and in luck and and the people. You're only as good as the people who help you, and the only way that you meet the people who help you are are through luck, or through fortuitous occurrence. But uh, the, the magazine, I would use, I, 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 the key to the, the success of the magazine was getting an international um, distributor. And Nutley, New Jersey, Phil in Nutley, New Jersey. And I would go from from Dayton, New York. I would go and down in the village I would see my magazine. Outside Macy's in a in a newsstand, I would see my magazine. Uh-huh. And there was a kick there. And it was a twelve year I did most of my interview in the interviews that I ever published
0: in, in Film Heritage and then uh, Well, l- l- let me ask you specific questions about film heritage. Sure. Sure. This uh, this interests me because I have um, a copy of of your book, obviously, Voices from the Set, which is kind of right. a collection of of some high profile interviews from the history of film heritage. I wonder, when did you start it, and what was the what was the kind of the mission statement of the magazine for you? You
1: keep asking about love and mission statements, and I have no idea what what they are. I think the the reason for Film Heritage was was an appreciation of film and seeing that there was not a, there was nothing that I wasn't I wasn't like uh, T. S. Eliot publishing myself or Hemingway publishing myself, but I did. It was at least I could guarantee publication. The other thing that was going on in my life was I only had a master's degree, and I had been hired by an ex professor of mine that went on and became that year um chairman of the of the department English department at the University of dayton and at the last minute he couldn't get anybody else he uh reached out to me at the last minute. And uh, I spent my whole career there, but but I was supposed to go on for PhD. I took one course at the University of Cincinnati, and it was I was supposed to do a paper on um, a year in the life of Shakespeare, and instead I created the film
0: magazine. Mm. What's it? uh, Did it? I know it involved interviews. Did it involve? Think pieces and, and oh sure them. sure oh yeah oh oh yes in fact I I published
1: the first, for the first time oh maybe ten people that be went went on to become major figures in writing about film and I would publish I, I published uh, John Simon on James Agee I published uh, Norman Mailer um, mm. so I I. It was, in fact, somebody said you should call it "Sitter uh, Lit," and I thought, "Oh my God, what an awful title!" So I I use Film Heritage, but it was literature and film, so the best of two possible worlds. I was really lucky. I was really lucky to come up one at that time, because today, I I don't I just don't know how somebody like me who is even not recognized for what i've done would even have a
0: shot at at even breathing in the in the world of uh, of creativity yeah, were you surprised at the level of access that you were able to to get these, No
1: no these, no because, because because i was the only one doing it and and yeah. time after time after time, I would talk to somebody or or contact somebody, and I stood. To, I understood them as as they wanted to be understood. So many of the interviews would say, um, "Boy, I've never. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. That's really interesting." And and Edith Head said, "How did you get me to say all this? I I didn't mean to say all this, but." There's
0: there's something about listening. I mean, reading these the interviews collected in this book. First of all, it's just a beautiful snapshot of of these artists ref, reflecting on their body of work, bodies of work. But uh, they're about they're about craft. They're about meaning. They're not about you know the surface and the flash and all of that.
1: that well, John happens- Wayne. Oh yeah, but because John Wayne, I would say, why did you change your accent? Where most people were saying, "Do you ever fight in bars?" or or Warren Beatty, I would say, "Do you did you have any sense of you were related to John F. Kennedy when you walked on the beach in that film?" It's a it's very similar. He said, "And when he usually gets, do you sleep in the nude?" So they so I I was. Right place, right time, good listener, and also somebody that was, was I'm not crazy about the word, curious, but, but wanted to find out what th- they were about. And I think that carries over my to my film criticism. Uh, one of the things about it is that uh, I always try to understand the film as it is meant to be understood. Does it deliver on what it says it is? And then, of course, I I might decide whether it's worth delivering. But but I want it so many times, and so many f- filmmakers are not understood. We we were we communicated or another time about my appreciation of Ethan Hawke recently in last year's film Born to be Blue where he played Chet Baker and it was as good a performance as I have ever seen I'm not ever seen as so last year and I'll bet two of your listeners have seen the film uh, nobody saw it and so you try and you try and reach out you try and and Understand it, and I wanted to talk to Ethan Hawke and tried to set up an interview. And the guy who was going to do it for me said, "Well, they would probably will only do it if if you're talking about his newest film, selling his new- no. That's not what I wanted, and that's yeah. one of the things that I think held me back a little bit. I would be very uncomfortable being a quote un- Celebrity, unquote, unquote celebrity. It seemed to me that when we talk about critics, so often we're talking about image. And the ones who are most successful are also extremely good at at marketing themselves. Pauline kale of the New Yorker was the best marketer, I think, in the history of, of, of film criticism. Uh, people once they would what they would read her and and because they would read her even when they hadn't seen the film because she wrote and she was interesting and she was obviously uh controversial and and, and confrontational but uh, she was marketed so well
0: did you experience that dynamic yourself where you were at a place where you could have have compromised your char- your well, character in well, that way
1: i i've spent my life trying to avoid <laughs> those <laughs> those uh situations um i i know i'm i'm very com- uncomfortable being complimented and i'm very yeah. uncomfortable being I mean, I mean i have an image i'm i'm in that kind of class uh, i was A bad boy growing up, and I was uh, even in kindergarten. I was the only kid who wouldn't skip; everybody else would skip, and I wouldn't. Um, And I've I've been able to. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of of self denial or self doubts. Uh, I don't have much either. I mean, when you don't, when you are creative and you don't look into your past. you tend to dismiss everything you've done. People keep saying to me, my my wife, my dear wife Judy, keeps saying to me, "You've done so much," and I said, "I haven't done anything. I'm not even a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm nothing. I haven't done anything. How many do I have on my Twitter account?" But I've I've made a kind of peace with that when you when you forget the fast, i i don't think i've ever told you this story maybe i have but i i sent my wife for our 22nd anniversary which is coming up i gave her a ticket last uh, for last saturday nights um, bill haley junior came out here the son of bill haley and uh he was at the the uh, south coast when I went back to a reunion, I've only been back one time in Philadelphia. People congratulated me, and said, oh, it was great that you brought Bill Haley to our prom. Oh. And I, re- I didn't remember it. It wasn't dementia. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was. not It wasn't long enough that I faked dementia. I faked my dementia, whatever. Uh, but I I didn't I didn't remember it. I remembered Mike Pettison, the local singer, who I really liked. But I had no memory of this. I mean, that sounds silly, and, and there must yeah, be a. I, there, I, think
0: that, I think that might be a symptom of 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 you having actually accomplished quite a bit in your life. You know, if you if if Bill Haley had been the high point of your life, then you would have remembered it. But I think in high school, lot. especially. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that may be. That may be so.
0: Well, I want to know uh, about um, the interviews you conducted, the people you met during Film Heritage. I know there are too many to name all of them, but I, I, I want to know which experiences come to mind first for you. Um, I was,
1: again, very, very lucky. I think of the 40 or so review interviews I had. They were all special people i mean we we we, oh that we think this person's been marketed this person but i i found that they were different from i was going to say you and i i I will just say they were different from you uh Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) no the the interview with john wayne um and I told you afterwards. He sent he sent me a, a signed picture, and he said, uh, "Tony, uh, um, thanks. You caught me in print as no one else has. as no one ever has." And that was that, that was really nice because we did we did hit it off, and it was a, a very a very uh, affecting experience. But if I say to a a young nurse or something, and the doctor's, what about John Wayne who? (laughs) Never? Maybe maybe her grandfather watches some John Wayne films. And when you say, okay, I had an interview and sat next to this man for an hour and 45 minutes, um, Clint Eastwood, in my mind, he's Dirty Harry. In their mind, who knows what he is? The time passes, and and I think John Wayne is probably pretty much forgotten today. And Hitchcock, in a sense too, that it's up to you and me to keep him to keep him alive, and and our 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 buddies and the gals, um, because their grandfather watched it, but they don't watch any John Wayne. They don't know Hitchcock. They, they may have seen the birds sometime, may may have. But the last two, two uh, nurses, no, I'm not criticizing nurses. One could be, okay, let's say it's a checkout girl, it's a nurse, it's a bartender, whatever. But the last two didn't know who Hitchcock was. What was the best Stroke of luck was growing up in the seventies when when the we had the golden age of american cinema yeah, uh, yeah. the late sixties and the early seventies the the films that were personal in a way
0: that that that
1: very very few films are
0: so it's so film heritage had a twelve year run and 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 what was what was the impetus for for film heritage to, to, to for you to part ways with film heritage
1: oh, something that you've been running into is money i mean it, it was a university universities are like the rest of the world they don't know what they have um, maybe one person knew what the value of film heritage. Most people thought, "Oh, it's just about uh, it's it's just about movies." It, it, it. So I, I I was at the University of Dayton, and, and the best thing I think I ever did in my life. I'm I tend to be overly generous, and because they were supporting me, I was going to give them the copyright, and I just kept it in my own name. And that was just, that was just great luck. And then I moved across to Wright State. I'm still teaching at the University of Dayton, but somebody picked it up for a couple years. And then after 10 years, 12 years, it had in one way lost, lost, uh, done its job. And in another, I didn't want to have to struggle for money and look and beg money and one thing I, that that I've also I I I talked to you about I've said this again and again and again it's the people who help you that that make you that you when you called me the first time for, or contacted me the first time that was very crucial um and a former student of mine Robert Madel, Created my website and said said to me one one time count I came out to Vegas, and said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, boy, I'd love to be on, get on Rotten Tomatoes and have my re- reviews at least accessible to some people." And so he did that for me. Another student I had tried for 25 years to get to get Clint, um, and and uh, he made that happen on the. Uh, with Million Dollar Baby and that that since that was the last I've done some sense but since that was the last big one and we're talking about age that people think oh I started talking about people knowing Dirty Harry the man is 82 years old Clint Eastwood I mean my, we talked one time over that time about uh, we chatted about Ford and Hawks never made movies in their older years. They had ideas and they tried. And, but uh, it, it is a different time. And and, and he, um, I'm glad he's still active at, yeah. at his age. So, so to answer your question, um, I don't think there's any uh, re-interview that I'm Unhappy with um, the one with Hitchcock, um, which some which the studio aide who was sitting in said he said some things to you that I've never heard him say before to anybody, and that was nice, but it was before I really knew the depth and 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 the ideas, the the thinking, the the intelligence. That went on in his movies in terms of, of the psychology and all of the, all of the different themes, the thematic Hitchcock, and some. That's like half an interview for me. It's still one of my favorite because Hitch is, was Hitch, but I I would, I wish I had had another chance to have an interview with him. One interview that I, I or one meeting I had with Basil Rathbone. We argued all night. Uh, he came to the University of Dayton, but um, we argued all night about about uh, the modern theater. I was a great fan of Albee, and and, and he, he he didn't like the modern theater. But we I didn't even mention Sherlock Holmes. Now, if I
2: interviewed him,
1: it probably would be all about uh, Sherlock Holmes.
0: But was there ever a time when you met one of these people and conversed with them when you were disappointed to find they weren't particularly interesting or were they always fascinating people
1: i i I have a gift of, of students used to have to at the university find somebody to interview at the, on the campus and they some would come to me, and everyone that ever came to me got an A.
2: Um,
1: I probably have an ability. I mean, if the guy was a, a, a complete one thing, I, I I had this detector that there were only a few that that if if some somebody had to be interesting, and in in, in film. Even if he was a dullard, I mean, the, the Robert Robert Osborne was talking about Mitchum about not, never getting through to Mitchum. I'd have loved the shot to get it through to Mitchum. I I had an interview with Sam Peckinpah, and, and he started the interview with what What kind of a question? What kind of a fucking question is that? And I went, Whoa! whoa. <laughs> so how do I get to this guy because he's this he's, he's cantankerous and. Somehow, we talk, started talking about our sons playing soccer. And boom, that was it. Oh. Then, then, oh. Then, then then I found, and I, I, I was able, people love, love to be appreciated, and they love to have their work understood. And do you know how much of a world they live in that people don't understand their films or miss... Critics and yeah. reviewers and otherwise, they don't understand. That's why I keep coming back to the idea, does it do, I want to understand it as it is meant to be understood, not as I would have directed it, which so many people do. They say, this film fails because it didn't do this. Well, it didn't want to do that. It didn't intend to do that. So you when did you move into teaching? Oh, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning Uh you almost had to go into teaching if you didn't want to go into the service. Um, And as I said, it was a last-minute deal that that I think I was going to go to Johns Hopkins, because I didn't have the fellowship that year, and just study writing. Um, And I got the call one day before school opened from the University of Dayton. So that was, you know, they weren't going to pay me. I mean, <laughs> so, and and my first one of my first classes, one of my first two classes, was all girls. I mean, come on. So, uh, but I came back after Christmas break, married. So, who knows how many hearts were broken. <laughs>
0: But what was the title of the course initially?
1: Oh, it was freshman comp.
0: Okay. I mean, I, but
1: I I have, in my long career of teaching, I have done it would seem, almost everything, and in film, I did all every every. I did comedy. I did foreign films. I did Hitchcock. I did a course on Altman and. Uh, Siegel, a course on—I uh, I told you that I—I I, uh, had the first college course. I think. I think it was. I'm, I'm tr- almost sure, the first college course on Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. And people, the, the reaction. I, I know that the alumnus got some saying, "What is he doing? We do Shakespeare and and this this." nothing director, and I remember a girl coming up before class, before the first class, and saying, I wanted to sign up for your class, but it's on Clint Eastwood. And I said, well, you know, there's there's some interesting women and some interesting themes, and she was a very good student. And so she, I don't think grudgingly, I think and or reluctantly, I think maybe a little
0: skeptically took the course, and at the end she came up and thanked me. But your uh, what was the most gratifying aspect of teaching for you? The, the
1: it was communication. It was and it it was education. It was finding out things. I was always I always considered it considered I was the best student in my class. And what a what a learning situation that is um, to to read to teach something from the for the first time and and to think about it and rethink about it and approach it and, and get an idea from a student and then take that idea and run with it and another student has another point of view and you're learning from them you've got a whole group of twenty people or however many it is that are, are involved in the experience of education. By the way, I, I wanted to ask you can I ask you another question? Yes. Okay. When when we started talking a long time ago, or not so long but a time ago. Um you were writing and you kept saying to you to me and to to the other people, that you were not a a reviewer or a critic. And I kept saying to you, you are a critic. You are a critic. Did you finally believe me and why? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is not No, I'm absolutely serious. I'm absolutely serious. I know you are. uh... See, talking about oneself isn't that easy, is it?
0: I, I, I never have the shoe on the other foot um in terms of interviewing I, I, I there are only a few times every year when I walk out of a movie and I feel like I have something unique to unique and potentially valuable to say about it that comes from my own perspective and um and and I think the <clears throat> the challenge for a critic is to do that consistently uh on a consistent basis, no matter how many movies you see a year, and I, then what? What do you? What, what, what?
1: What's your? What's your critical evaluation
0: of *Mall Cop 2? My critical evaluation is: I refuse to see it. I'm not going to wait. Yes, of course,
1: because and that's and that's. <laughs> I feel the same way. I have not, and it's. It, it, I have not reviewed *Moonlight* because I had nothing to add. Um, and Ann Hornaday in the Washington post had done a sublime review and there was no room for me. And, and so this is one thing about being the critic that I am is that I can pick and choose. And sometimes, um, Adam, Adam, your guy, Adam, um, What's his last name? Long. Yeah. I
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, he put uh, Tower on the top of his list, and yeah, so I looked up rain. it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and I thought, "Jeez, it's like seventy-nine to nothing." And uh, so sometimes you're influenced by by another critic uh, to see a film that you would have missed otherwise. And I really appreciated
0: that. I, I I was very happy with that.
1: By the way, I, I was
0: talking about. Go ahead. Tower Tower was my number three, and and that that was an in, of the year last year. That was an instance where I felt like I had such a response to the film, and I I, I knew what I wanted to express about it. Um, and there there are just a few movies like that for me that I see every year where I feel like I can contribute to the conversation. It, 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 in a singular way, but, you, uh, but don't you don't you when you're doing
1: that also have a very very depthful uh, ser- searching uh, conversation with yourself? Yeah. I learned so many things about a movie by writing about it, but sometimes, I'll, I'll, sometimes I won't recognize the duality which is one of the themes I really love. And I find it in Hitchcock all the time, but I also find it in... And then I stumble across it. and I say, oh, I have to write down every time this happened twice, or there were two examples of this, or two characters that matched. And I wouldn't have seen... I didn't see that. And yet, it's in my mind when I say, oh, I, 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 I opened this door, nothing there. I opened this door, and the tiger jumped out. and and I, I'm intrigued. And so that, that to me is a lot of what criticism says, which leads me to Dwight McDonald. He he wrote a book called uh, Against the American Grain, and he had an essay in it, Mass Cult and Mid-Cult. Now, I've talked about that, I think, one, one time before with you, but it's worthy of, of re-mentioning here. In which he divided expression into three categories: um, mass cult. You know what that is. That's the film for the masses. The um, they forget it two steps out after leaving the theater, and, and it's it, it's an entertaining ex- experience aimed primarily at those who don't want to think at the movies. I just go to the movies to for to escape. And then the, the best the art films, the art films. And then his mid-cult, the, 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 he, he divided into mass cult, high culture, which is art, mass cult, which is mass. Mid-culture is, is the one I, I love, because that is something that is phony, that pretends to be something, and most people buy it. Most people are propagandized buy it, and this says I am I am funny, and so the audience starts to laugh even before the joke is made, or the laugh track, which I you know we've talked about that. Uh, the laugh track is is uh, takes something that isn't funny and forces it on the audience and insults the audience, and they don't realize that they're being insulted. Um, I think you and I both listen, and when we hear, I have never used the word unbelievable and never will, because I saw it and I believed it. And it happens every, it's every sportscaster's favorite word. It's not unbelievable. Lawrence O'Donnell, to everybody he interviews, says, I really appreciate it. What do you mean you really appreciate it? You appreciated it or not? Not if you have one person on, that's extraordinary. You might say, "I really appreciate it," but he's turned it into a cliche. Language is such a cliche; becomes such a cliche. This morning, I was driving in the car, and I heard a, a guy talking about sports, and he used the word, the phrase, you know, three times in one sentence. And I, I, I go nuts with this. I, I, nobody else does. No. For instance, people do not now, – now I'm on my soapbox. People do not, do not look at, at credits much on, on TV. Do you know that almost every program now has 15 producers and co-producers and executive producers and co-producers? And the, war, the more they have, the weaker the show is. It the, the, gets the the, watered down. Yeah, and because it's it's like a vanity project at that point. It's no longer creative. It's no longer individual. It's no longer unique. It's no longer different. It's, oh, these are my friends. These are my colleagues. I'll put them. And you, like, like the end of Bones, they didn't have time for a program. They They listed so many producers. You
0: know, during the time that you were, you were engaged in in the filmmaking, the filmmakers of the day during that period in the late '60s and '70s. Um, those filmmakers were inspired by by gr- the greats, whether it be John Ford or the sp- figures from the French New Wave or what have you. When you look at when you think about the filmmakers of the next generation, who do you hope they who do you hope they draw inspiration from 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 this time that we're living in now? I mean, do they have anyone comparable to that?
1: They won't. They won't even know who he is. But I think a good source of human personal filmmaking, which we are both fans of, is Tom McCarthy. Um, I uh, the station agent. Is a wonderful film, and yes. the film about the wrestler, the, the the high school wrestler. Yes. And the when visitor, the visitor is yes. a wonderful film. I mean, they're just so. And nobody knows he won an Oscar, but he won the Oscar for a Spotlight. Um, hmm. and I hope that that would because there's a lot of indie in his work in 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 that could affect the modern director, him or her, who wants to be personal and wants to create character. And he wrote his own scripts, And there is a sense of... of, Now, he's not big enough and he's not shiny enough. He's more... um, He's more Macklin than he is Osborne but he's he's he won the oscar for best director so i guess it, i guess he's much more than Macklin. Um, but there i think i think the 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 there are some good things about the the modern filmmaker i think the filmmakers are still going back to being influenced by hitch and so they're passing hitch's on with their own fingerprints on it with their own sense of 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 style, the problem, the problem, the the creativity almost always gets lost in the marketplace. Right. And I can say that easily because I've never been in the marketplace, so I I, I can be above it um, or outside it at least. But how many people are just fighting to somehow get their film made? One, one thing that is, is is stable and enduring is that somehow the creative people find their way through the system uh-huh. they get I, I i last the other night i i I've, i was thinking about t- talking to you on the air and i was thinking about what do i what do what do I want to say? And I haven't said any of it because I never came up with an answer. <laughs> but uh, there was a program on PBS about Brian Wilson and the making of Pet Sounds. Yeah. And it was just the feeling, the impact of that and the creativity, you know that the, that there will be some people that are driven that are driven to succeed, to succeed on their own levels that are perfectionist much more than me or maybe even you that that will will somehow transcend the system or manipulate their way through the system or uh, i through our lives film has prevailed and yeah. I see the marketplace. The marketplace has always been a detriment to to creativity or an obstacle for creativity. Um, Seats in the seat, uh, asses in the seat is the the primary thing. And more than anything, it's foreign asses in the seat because so many of the films are geared to no dialogue, little dialogue, therefore not much character because as we suggest it's maybe Chaplin didn't have to have dialogue but most of or Keaton but most people do and um, that's the reason that's where the money is the money comes from that from from those but there're still there's, there's still human drive and there's still I don't use the word for myself. I use it for the guys that do the ticket, the tuck-in shirts. But there still is passion out there for making film, for for being creative, despite everything in their way. And so films, I don't. Films prevail. Films will prevail.
2: One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, rock, we're gonna rock Around the clock tonight, What's your fat bags on